0: Welcome to Clery Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom and light. My name is Nick Levy and I'll be your host today. Our topic today is the European Union's Digital Markets Act, a landmark piece of legislation signed into law in September, 2022. That, in the words of its architects, seeks to make the digital economy fairer and more contestable by ensuring, so it's hoped by its proponents, that gatekeeper platforms engage in fair practices online and don't abuse their dominant positions. Here to unpack what it means are three leading experts, Thomas Graff, Henry Mostyn, and Jackie Holland. I'm going to start with some questions for Thomas and Henry on the Digital Markets Act, the European Union's piece of legislation, and then I'm going to turn at the end to Jackie to talk about the UK's parallel legislation and where that stands today. Thomas, before we discuss the details and potential implications of the DMA, I'd like to start by discussing how we got there. The European Commission, as you know well, has opened numerous antitrust investigations over the past decade involving Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. Several have resulted in large fines collectively totaling over 10 billion euro, and other cases are ongoing. So why then did the European Union decide it needed a regulatory regime?
1: Thank you. So, actually, several of the antitrust cases that you mentioned, Nick, are now enshrined in the rules of the DMA, such as uh, the interoperability case in Microsoft, or the the search ranking case in Google, or the cross use data case uh, for Facebook. And if we look at why the EU adopted the DMA, then there are probably two main considerations. Uh, The first one is that people considered these antitrust cases to take quite a long time. If you look at uh, the Microsoft case or the Google case, then these cases were going on uh, for many years, and that was considered to be unsatisfactory. I think people felt that uh, antitrust uh, law puts uh, significant hurdles uh, before the antitrust authorities to to bring these cases and overcoming these hurdles uh, takes too much time. The second reason uh, why the EU may have felt that the DMA is necessary is that Some of these cases uh, were quite uh, controversial. It's not very clear whether they can be uh, generalized. For example, with the Microsoft interoperability case, the the legal standard that was set was uh, an indispensability standard. So uh, Microsoft had the duty to supply interoperability information because uh, the commission found that that interoperability information was indispensable for competing. But that's a test that is uh, quite difficult to meet. Similarly, in in, in the Google search ranking case, there were a number of factors that uh, led the Commission to conclude that uh, there was an infringement. And it's not uh, very evident whether these factors that were established in that case uh, can be generalized, can be applied to other situations. We look at the Facebook case. that uh, triggered quite a lot of controversy because the German competition authority in that case relied uh, on theories that were connected to uh, GDPR and, and human rights infringements. And that it was hotly debated whether uh, these sort of principles can be really applied in antitrust cases. And, and and these questions are still being litigated in front of the court. So it's... Uh, There was doubt whether these cases really provide a solid base for regulating digital platforms.
0: So Thomas, is it right to think of the DMA largely as a codification exercise then, a tidying up of the law and an articulation of the principles that these various cases uh, stand for, or does it go further?
1: So in part, uh, in part, it is certainly a, a kind of codification exercise because, as I said, like many of the rules, the behavioral rules in the DMA are inspired uh, by past cases or or pending cases. Uh, but at the same time, I would say there is also there are also new aspects because the, the rules don't just merely codify what was found in these past cases. So a uh, first important difference is that the DMA's rules uh, do not require the commission to establish uh, a series of conditions that were necessary for bringing these past cases. So uh, in particular, the commission does not need to establish uh, dominance in the antitrust sense uh, in individual cases. Uh, instead, uh, the commission will simply establish that an undertaking holds a, a gatekeeper position and then, Uh, the rules of the DMA will apply to that company without having to show any sort of market power in an individual case. And second, equally important, the commission uh, does not need to prove restrictive effects. That was an important aspect of this uh, new legislation. And finally, the DMA is also not going to allow sort of classic antitrust efficiency defenses uh, to justify uh, the conduct.
0: Thank you, Thomas. I'll turn to the question of um, the absence of scope to advance efficiencies or objective justification a little later. But before I do, let me turn to Henry. You, you followed the debate around this landmark piece of legislation uh, over the time it's been in uh, contemplation. What were the main issues, the points of uh, controversy, if you like, uh,
2: that were discussed and debated over that period? Uh, Thanks, Nick. I think the first point to note is the DMA has now been adopted and published in the official journal, and it will come into force on November the 1st. So that means the entire process uh, from soup to nuts, from first publication by the Commission in December 2020 to to adoption took under two years. Uh, And that's remarkably quick for legislation of this scope. And I think testament to the unanimity among the Commission, the Council and Parliament that something needed to be done. Uh, as an analogy that GDPR took four years between proposal and adoption. Uh, And so the debate over the last two years haven't been so much about the objectives. I think there's broad agreement that the commission needed a new tool uh, to act more quickly to address concerns in digital markets and promote contestability, uh, as Thomas explained. Uh, There's also been uh, the objective to achieve enforcement harmonization, perhaps a bit more controversially. Uh, And because today there were a range of cases under review by the commission, Uh, And there were also open cases with other regulators in member states like Germany, France, and Italy. Uh, And these cases uh, and their theories they pursue sometimes overlap. Uh, And there's a worry that leaving um, digital regulation to piecemeal enforcement could result in fragmentation. Uh, And the DMA is uh, a recognition of its fact. And so um, its second objective is to try and achieve harmonization within the internal market. Uh, And I think whether it achieves that objective will be an important metric for a success. There has been, though, uh, some debate over the last two years around how the the DMA should achieve these two objectives. Uh, And it's going to focus on three main issues that we'll come on to discuss. So just very briefly, first, there's been some debate about the scope of the DMA, which companies it should apply to. Uh, Second, there's been some debate about which services should be in scope. Uh, And third, there's also been some debate about the obligations that apply. And we'll also come on to discuss that. Uh, And for instance, a a new obligation was added for horizontal interoperability between messaging services uh, and some existing obligations were extended. And we'll come on to discuss that more. So to sum up, the core goals of contestability and coherence have remained largely unchanged. um, But there's been debate about um, how to achieve those uh, twin objectives.
0: Thanks, Henry. One of the many pleasures of doing a podcast with your colleagues is that they tee up the questions as well as provide (laughs) the answers. So let's turn to the first question that you uh, teed up, or the first issue, namely the uh, scope of the uh, DMA. And one of the key issues, as you know, was the definition of uh, gatekeepers that will be subject to the legislation. Where did the EU land in,
2: based on currently available information, which companies do you expect to be covered? So gatekeepers are gonna be identified based on a mixture of qualitative and quantitative criteria. So first, uh, the company must operate a so-called core platform service or or CPS. uh, And that's an acronym that you'll hear a lot uh, over the coming years. So CPSs are those lists of services that are set out in regulation, like social networks, search engines, video hosting services, marketplaces and app stores. And they're supposed to be important platforms between users and businesses. Second, uh, the company must satisfy various quantitative thresholds. So the group that it belongs to must have turnover of more than seven and a half billion euros or a market cap of 75 billion euros. And then this is the important point, the CPS at issue for the last three financial years must have 45 million monthly active users and 10,000 annual business users. If you're over that, the service is presumed to have that gatekeeper position between the users and the businesses. Uh, and so in terms of who's going to be covered, the GAFAM companies, uh, Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Amazon and Microsoft are going to be gatekeepers uh, and they're likely going to have uh, several different product, products designated as CPSs. Uh, importantly though, the DMA is not solely targeted at the GAFAMs and other companies may well be in scope if they satisfy those thresholds. If you ask me to predict, who's in scope. Uh, that's not straightforward, because those user numbers are, are not publicly available. Uh, and the Commission itself, I think, uh, is, is unsure of who's going to be in scope. Uh, Gerard de Graaf at the Commission recently spoke at a conference where he explained that how many is a bit hard to, to predict, but between 10 and 15, most likely, which was actually more than I was expecting. And I just wanted to draw out a, a, a four quick points that aren't always well understood uh, about the designation uh, requirement. First, the DMA has no market power requirement, so a product with a five percent share can be a gatekeeper if it has sufficient usage based on monthly active users. So that means a product that use, is used fairly regularly, but infrequently compared to rivals could be subject to the, the DMA's rules. Uh, and to give an example, a, a Microsoft representative recently spoke at a conference about how Bing is over those thresholds, despite being a lot less popular than Google Search in Europe. Uh, second. Those rules only apply to the covered products. So a company is not all in with all its products once a specific CPS is designated. Uh, And that's different to how um, the German rules that are already already in force operate, where where the rules apply to all the company's products once you're in. Third, uh, the turnover and market cap thresholds apply at group level. So if a popular platform that's currently part of a, a modest group is bought by a private equity firm, hedge funds, or very rich individual, then the DMA's rules could suddenly apply to them. Something to watch out for. Uh, and fourth, those qualitative definitions that I mentioned to identify CPSs are not always straightforward to apply. Um, so the contours of what is and is not part of a CPS is gonna have a lot of legal relevance when it comes to the DMA's rules. And under the DMA, the test for identifying when one product starts and another begins is to look at the overall purpose. And that's a fairly elastic test uh, and something I expect will be a major focus over the next few years. Thanks,
0: Henry. So it sounds like, well, some aspects of the jurisdictional scope, if you like, of the legislation are clear. Others may be much less clear and subject to debate and, I suppose, potential litigation, given the implications. Let me turn now to the to the services that are in scope, the meat of the DNA, really, Thomas. What does the DMA prohibit and what does it implicitly or explicitly allow?
1: So the DMA is basically structured uh, by listing uh, a series of behavioral rules, uh, close to 20 such rules. And and these rules uh, are formulated as kind of categorical do's and don'ts. Uh, They are automatically uh, executable and they formulate prohibitions or obligations uh, for CPSs. Uh, Some of these rules uh, apply to all categories of CPSs, uh, core platform services as listed in the DMA. And some of of the rules uh, apply to particular types uh, of of platforms. Now, as we already discussed, uh, many of the rules have been inspired by past cases uh, some other rules are new and are sort of reflect more uh, general uh, complaints uh, or desires uh, about regulating certain aspects of, of of digital platforms so i'm not going to propose to go through all the close to 20 uh, behavioral rules but just sort of to pick a few and, and, and give a flavor of the type of things uh, that DMA requires. So there is, um, there is, for example, a rule that prohibits platforms. That's a general rule that applies to all uh, the covered digital platforms. It prohibits uh, platforms from sharing personal data between different services of the gatekeeper without user consent. So if personal data within... A digital company uh, wants to travel then from now on there is a, a user consent required subject to some limitations but sort of the general rule is uh, a user consent is needed and that that is inspired uh, by uh, the case that uh, the german authorities brought against facebook but without the sort of specific gdpr type analysis that uh, the German uh, authority applied in that case. Another rule is uh, that operating systems will need uh, to make it easy for uh, users to change defaults of apps. That's a general obligation that applies to all apps. In addition, the rule also specifies that um, uh, for search engines, browsers, and uh, virtual assistants, the operating system needs to present a choice screen where the user will be able to choose the search engine, browser, or or virtual assistant. And that that is inspired by uh, the Google Android case, where such a choice screen solution was formulated as part of the remedy. So this was not actually in the original decision, but uh, the remedy uh, that was implemented following decision included uh, this sort uh, of choice screen. Another rule is uh, a non-discriminatory ranking rule, which uh, prohibits uh, platforms from favoring in their ranking their own first-party services uh, relative to rival third-party services. That rule is inspired by the Google shopping case, but it's actually broader. So it doesn't apply just to search engines. It also applies to uh, all online intermediation services. So for example, also app stores or merchant platforms Uh, like Amazon. So this is now sort of a generalized rule, with sort of quite wide application uh, requiring non-discriminatory ranking. Uh, Another rule uh, provides uh, for an obligation to enable uh, equal interoperability for operating systems uh, between first party and third party uh, products and services. That's inspired by the Microsoft Workgroup server uh, case, but um, here uh, the rule applies without need, as I mentioned, without need to uh, establish indispensability of the Uh, interoperability information it's a general obligation to enable interoperability and that rule uh, will will apply subject to sort of only narrow uh, exceptions and then to give like to give an example of of a rule that is sort of not inspired by uh, past cases there is a rule uh, specifically for search engines which requires um, gatekeeper search engines Uh, to disclose uh, search data click view ranking uh, query data to rival search engines and here the idea is that uh, this data is assumed to be important uh, for search engines to compete that smaller search engines don't have sufficient scale um, uh, to uh, generate sufficient data to develop good algorithms. And so the idea is that the, a big search engine has to share that sort of data with uh, rival search engines, but it's subject to anonymization. So it's going to be only anonymized data. That's very new. There is no precedent for that. Uh, and we will see how that uh, will work out. There are also sort of a, a series of rules on transparency in advertising, where, you know, um, advertisers and publishers now are supposed to get additional information or sort of a minimum set of information on prices and costs that are being levied uh, throughout the digital advertising chain and this is also something that is sort of doesn't have really a precedent but it's something where um, there have been complaints that the digital advertising is not sufficiently transparent and, and here the DMA introduces these kind of disclosure rules.
0: So thanks, Thomas. It sounds like it's a combination of codification in the sense of recitation or confirmation of principles to have emerged from some of the case law, together with some new affirmative um, obligations on the gatekeepers designed to create more competition
1: than currently exists. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, I think uh, that's fair. And that, that, I guess, goes to the contestability objective of the DMA that, that Henry mentioned. I think that it is it is somewhat different from sort of the traditional antitrust focus on competitive restrictions and, and, and remedying these competitive restrictions. Here, this is sort of, it has a sort of a prophylactic or preventive aspect to uh, forestall any possible restrictions, but also it has sort of a a promotional aspect of actually, uh, the idea seems to be to stimulate competition where there was previously perhaps not uh, sufficient competition. So that
0: touches on uh, one of the topics that was mentioned earlier on, a a very interesting one, I think. Um, Under Article 101, as you of course know, even in the case of hardcore restrictions, one can still try to argue that they should be exempted under Article 102. One can advance uh, objective justifications in respect of merger control. One can advance efficiencies. But the DMA essentially uh, adopts an approach that doesn't give room for uh, adducing any of that kind of evidence or or argumentation. Henry, how, how controversial is this, this approach of the DMA?
2: It is a little controversial, uh, and the DMA is a, a bit of an outsider compared to other proposed regulations, such as in the UK, the US, uh, and Australia, and Germany, where the rules are already enforced, all of which explicitly uh, allow for justification. So the DMA is an outlier in that it does not explicitly have that built in. However, the DMA will need to be interpreted and enforced consistent with the overarching EU principle of proportionality. Uh, And for several of the DMA's rules, fairness and reasonableness are already built into the the rules themselves. For example, Article 12, which requires fair and reasonable and non-discriminatory access to app stores, social networks and search engines, that builds in fairness and reasonableness. The interoperability that Thomas described as a carve out for measures that are necessary and proportionate. So while there is no uh, explicit justification requirement, uh, we do still expect it to be enforced and applied proportionately, which, which will allow uh, such defences to be made.
0: Thomas, do you have any additional thought as to uh, the absence of any possibility to advance efficiencies or objective justification?
1: From all that we have heard, is indeed sort of the classic antitrust efficiency will likely have very little room uh, within the DMA. Because sort of The signals from the Commission have been that they will not listen to or accept uh, these sort of efficiency uh, defences. I think the more interesting question is indeed whether in the context of proportionality, as, as, as Henry has mentioned, you know, questions uh, can be, uh, considerations can be invoked that plead in favor of the behavior. Uh, For example, uh, security considerations or or quality considerations if uh, a particular behavior is necessary to maintain the quality of the service. And there there may be a bit more room. Uh, It will have to be, you know, the arguments will have to be within the framework Uh, of the DMA, it's hard to see that the Commission would accept sort of a total exemption from a particular rule, because there are also there are specific rules for exemption, but they are very narrowly crafted. And so uh, outside those very narrowly crafted exemptions, it's unlikely that a a total exemption will be accepted. But when it comes to the question, how to comply with the DMA, if there are different ways to comply or meet the objectives of the DMA, then at that moment, I would think proportionality needs to come in, and if there are, you know, if there is a particular way to comply which is more beneficial or is less harmful to quality or security, then that should prevail over alternative options.
0: Thanks, Thomas. Uh, before I turn to the um, uh, to the implementation of the DMA and the relationship between the DMA and national systems of regulation that uh, have been being adopted in Europe, a question about merger control. As uh, listeners to some of the other podcasts will know, the Commission in um, March 2021 published a guidance paper that was designed to encourage member states um, to refer to the Commission transactions they believed were anti-competitive that did not meet uh, the national merger control thresholds of the referring member states. And um, this was subject to a provision that has existed in the merger regulation from the outset, Article 22, and was designed to capture so-called uh, killer acquisitions that the Commission's concerned may be escaping review. The guidance paper is obviously the principal instrument to try to capture those deals. But the DMA also um, has a role in this respect, doesn't it? Uh, Henry, do you want
2: to say a word as to that? Sure. Uh, I'm not sure I can teach you anything about merger control, Nick, but uh, I'll have a go. Uh, So the DMA has a reporting obligation, uh, Article 14, that requires gatekeepers to inform the commission about concentrations in the digital space or that involve the collection of data. In practice, we expect that almost all gatekeeper acquisitions will need to be reported uh, under this rule. Um, Importantly, though, there is no standstill obligation. So gatekeepers are just required to notify prior to closing and the information needed is much less than a a normal merger notice. You you require information such as transaction value, rationale and revenue and and user numbers. Uh, And the commission will publish that list of acquisitions reported by uh, the gatekeepers. And it will inform member states importantly about these acquisitions. Uh, But once notified under Article 14, gatekeepers can close the transaction. But but as you rightly note, Article 14 is designed to work in parallel with the new guidance under Article 22 of the merger regulation by providing member states necessary to action that case referral mechanism. So once the member states receive the information from the notification, they can then ask the commission to examine the transaction, even if post-closing it doesn't meet the member states' thresholds. So overall, uh, there's going to be a lot more uncertainty in deal making for gatekeeper firms. As I noted at the beginning, it seems from the Commission's comments like there are going to be more gatekeepers than just the GAFAM. Uh, and the final point to note on Article 14 is that it comes into effect immediately upon designation. So that'll be midway through next year. Uh, there's no six-month grace period like there is for the behavioural rules, which will come into force six months after. Those um, core platform services are designated, which is in some time in early 2024. So it's going to happen earlier as well.
0: There are going to be all sorts of things to follow with interest, but one I think will be whether this mechanism turns into something akin to the briefing paper approach that the CMA in the UK has, whereby companies proactively not only inform the agency of deals, but also describe... Uh, in summary form why they don't think they raise any uh, competition issue, because after all, the mere notification in stark terms of a particular deal may give very little guidance to the Commissioner or anyone else um, as to whether that transaction is capable of having an effect. I'm going to turn now to the implementation of the DMA, and I realise things haven't been settled yet, so there's a bit of crystal ball uh, watching here. Um, But can you give your best guess as to who at the commission is going to be enforcing uh, the DMA? Is it going to be DG competition alone or together with one or more other directorates? And do you think the organization is going to be by company or by type of practice, Thomas?
1: So indeed, the DMA is unusual in that uh, competence for enforcement will be Uh, with the European Commission. Usually sort of uh, EU regulations are being enforced by member states. This is not the case here. The European Commission is going to be in charge of enforcing this piece of legislation. How it will uh, exactly unfold is indeed uh, still a little bit up uh, for discussion. It seems like uh, it's going to be a joint exercise uh, by DG Competition and DG Connect, uh, which will pool resources to have sort of a joint uh, unit or task force um, uh, dealing uh, with the DMA. One big question I think in the enforcement is uh, to what extent uh, the commission would sort of, if you want, lean back and uh, wait for complaints, uh, because as I mentioned, the rules in principle are self-executing. So the responsibility for compliance is with the, with the digital platforms. And if they get it wrong, they can, be, they can be fined. So it could be a little bit like with uh, competition law that sort of the commission intervenes at the moment of infringement. But the DMA also uh, includes a provision for, um, if you want a regulatory dialogue. The company can discuss with the commission the details of of, of the compliance and the Commission has the possibility to specify, to issue a specification decision to explain what exactly the company needs to do, which is sort of short of an infringement decision. So this will be without funds. And so I think the general expectation is that it will be sort of a bit of mix of both, that the uh, companies that are open to this dialogue might enter into a dialogue with the, with the commission, uh, will then in this dialogue shape the exact contours of uh, the compliance, but the Commission, of course, can also intervene when it sees um, uh, scope for concerns, when it sees that the company doesn't comply, and it can uh, impose fines and, and order corrective measures. An interesting idea that has been floated by the Commission, has been mentioned by the Commissioner, is that the Commission wants to organize workshops, with industry stakeholders, so not just with the digital platforms that are concerned, but uh, with the broader ecosystem, with the, with the stakeholders, uh, business users, possibly even representatives of consumers, to sort of debate and, and discuss uh, the way that um, digital platforms should comply uh, with uh, with the DMA and, and what the right solutions are. So that's a sort of quite a, a novel instrument. It has been tested in a few antitrust cases, but the commission has also organized sort of sh- uh, stake, uh, stakeholder workshops, uh, but sort of as a more systematic tool, this is something new.
0: And Thomas, as to my question as to whether uh, the commission would organize itself by practice or by company, is it possible
1: to, to see the
0: direction of travel?
1: Um, I think that is a little bit too early. I think we haven't, we haven't seen sort of sufficient uh, indication. It's, it's clear that they will sort of allocate responsibilities in some way, but it, it's not clear whether there will be sort of units dedicated to individual companies uh, or individual rules. I think my guess is if, if it's true, as Henry mentioned at the beginning, that actually there's going to be quite a considerable number. Uh, of possible gatekeepers then uh, an organization by rules or, or topics makes more sense than having sort of a dedicated unit for each uh, digital platform.
0: And of course the commission and by the commission I mean DG Competition hasn't foreclosed the possibility of bringing individual cases with respect I imagine to practices that aren't covered in fact the Director General Olivier gerson has said that he thinks it's likely that the Commission will identify practices that aren't covered. So let me turn to the relationship between uh, the Digital Markets Act and national regulation. In the initial draft of the Act, uh, published in December 2020, the Commission positioned the Act as a means to create a coherent framework for digital regulation in Europe and to harmonize uh, enforcement. And There's been quite a bit of debate about whether parallel systems of national regulation could be adopted, whether they be compliant with the DMA um, or not. Perhaps um, the most prominent piece of legislation to be adopted has been in uh, Germany, where the um, head of the cartel officers uh, championed uh, their regulatory regime um, as being more flexible than the commissions. Where does this leave uh, companies, Henry? Do they face double jeopardy at the commission level and at the national level or does compliance with one equate to a
2: compliance with all others? It's a good question and you're quite right that one of the DMA's key goals is to harmonize regulation for digital platforms under the EU. Uh, as you said, the, the article um, of the treaty under it was adopted was article 114, which is the harmonization article, not the competition law article 342, which would have required unanimity in the council. So what does that mean? At a basic level, there should not be overlapping parallel rules that apply to digital platforms in Europe enforced by national uh, competition regulators. To that end, the commission should be the sole enforcer of the DMA. Uh, So what this means for the existing German rules that are already enforced is not completely clear. Uh, Some believe that the German rules should become inapplicable once the DMA enters into force. But this is not to say that the DMA begins and ends with the Commission, um, as the Commission has actually emphasized in, in recent comments. So national agencies will be involved in supporting the Commission's enforcement of the DMA and investigating infringements. And in fact, following the trilogue negotiations, um, NCAs have an expanded role compared to the original draft. Uh, they're competent to hear complaints, um, albeit if the NCA thinks there's an issue of non-compliance, it must then transfer that case to the Commission. And as I said, the Commission uh, in recent weeks has been at pains to emphasize the cooperation that there'll be with the national agencies. Olivier Gerson recently emphasized that regulators need to be collectively effective as possible, uh, and that NCAs can investigate possible infringements of the DMA rules, albeit they will then need to refer that case to the Commission. Uh, And finally, while it's not completely clear cut, uh, it seems like at least some of the DMA's provisions could be invoked in national courts by private parties. uh, And that follows from basic principles of EU law. Uh, So in short, it's clear that the commission has the main enforcement role, but but it's not the only cook in the kitchen.
0: Thank you for that, Henry. So let's turn now to the UK, a cook that's in a different kitchen completely since uh, Brexit. We've been focusing uh, today on uh, the EU There was a time when uh, the CMA, emboldened, uh, empowered by Brexit, was very hopeful that the UK would steal a march uh, on the European Union and introduce legislation uh, applicable to the UK ahead of the EU legislation. Um, That optimism um, was moderated over time as politics intervened and the debate in the UK as to what Brexit meant, should it lead to a light touch, Singapore-like future, or one in which regulation would be uh, adopted in parallel or different from the European Union uh, raged. And it's interesting that uh, Andrea Cacelli in uh, the inaugural podcast um, of this uh, series uh, identified and uh, The lack of progress in the UK is one of his regrets, but spoke nonetheless as to his hopes, expectation that individual cases uh, would be brought. So, Jackie Holland, uh, you've been a keen observer of the UK scene for a while, former director of policy at the UK agency. Tell us what's going on, what's the current state of play, and what's your expectation as to the future.
3: Thanks, Nick. Well, I think the short answer is is that things are rather up in the air at the moment in the UK, given the current political situation here. Hopefully we'll find out more over the coming weeks and months if things begin to stabilise. Um, The UK government published a consultation document back in July 2021 on a new digital markets regime for the UK that would be enforced by the Digital Markets Unit or the DMU, um, a new acronym, not to be confused with the DMA in Brussels. Um, The DMU has already been established in the CMA in um, shadow form. The UK proposals are not the same as the DMA, um, although they cover similar ground. In May of this year, um, the UK government published its response to the consultation, setting out what would be the core elements of the new regime. So the new regime would apply to a small number of firms that are designated by the CMA as having strategic market status, or SMS, in relation to specific digital activities. So you're not designated as an entity as such for all of your activities, but it will be looked at on a case by case basis in relation to specific activities. SMS firms will then be required to comply with certain conduct requirements that are tailored to their activities. So there won't be general restrictions. This will be tailored provisions relating to that specific firm and its activities. Um, The conduct requirements will fall under three uh, key objectives of fair trading, open choice, and of trust and transparency. The DMU will also be able to impose targeted pro-competitive interventions or PCIs on the SMS firms where an adverse effect on competition can be demonstrated. So, for example, if the the DMU is able to identify an adverse effect on competition, it could decide to impose some interoperability requirements in order to reduce barriers to entry or improve switching um we would also have in the uk significant financial penalties of up to 10% of worldwide turnover for breaching the rules as well as the possibility of direct to disqualifications for breaches in contrast to what henry was talking about earlier on this podcast in relation to the dma Um, SMS firms will be able to have the opportunity to convince the DMU that conduct requirements or PCIs are unnecessary due to pro-competitive benefits or consumer benefits that are resulting from the behaviour in question. Um, Like the DMA, the proposals include requirements on SMS firms to report acquisitions to the CMA So we might find that firms are having to report acquisitions voluntarily to both Brussels and to the UK under these type of provisions in the future. So in terms of the timing of this, the government response stated it would bring forward legislation to implement these reforms when parliamentary time allows back in May. The Queen's speech in May um, set out the government's legislative programme for the 2022 to 2023 parliamentary session. Um, This included reference to a draft of the legislation being published, but no commitment to introduce it in Parliament in that session. Given the recent changes in the UK, it's not entirely clear whether this legislation remains a priority um, or when this draft law will um, be published. Um, either way, we're now not expecting the law to start the parliamentary process until at least a year's time, and so it'll be some time now before it takes, um, comes into effect in the UK. In the meantime, the CMA is continuing to use its existing toolkit against the big tech firms, including pursuing antitrust cases and carrying out market studies into digital markets such as mobile ecosystems and music streaming recently.
0: As we're learning to our cost, a week is a long time in British politics, a year or so is an eternity. Um, I realise it's hard to, uh, to foresee, Jackie, what any legislation may look like, but have any particular types of practices been identified to date in the UK that aren't caught by the DMA, but which are in the sights of the CMA or the government for the corresponding UK regime?
3: I mean, I think one of the key differences, a lot of the ground that's covered is similar, but just tackled in a slightly different way. I think one key difference would be that the UK regime would contemplate some more sort of measures aimed at consumer protection, as well as the competition justifications. So that would be a sort of an area where potentially the UK regime is a little wider than the DMA.
0: And the current thinking is that the uh, the regime would be uh, would be enforced by the CMA in parallel with the CMA's enforcement of antitrust law in the UK, or would there be some separate unit or group that would be um, charged with enforcing the legislation?
3: Yes. So expecting the digital markets unit within the CMA to um, be enforcing the new regime. And that unit is also running antitrust cases and market studies into the digital firms at the moment. So, yes, it would be the same body of individuals within the CMA.
0: And you're right to remind us that the UK has an unusual part of the regime enables the agency to conduct market studies and market investigations of entire uh, sectors or courses of conduct across sectors and introduce uh, remedies to deal with that in a way that the European Union doesn't have because they have to focus on specific infringements by uh, particular companies. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Thomas and Henry, too, for a fascinating overview of the Digital Markets Act and the Parallel UK legislation. We're clearly in for an extraordinary new world where regulation and antitrust operate in parallel, in parallel both within Brussels and as between Brussels and the national capitals. Thank you very much for listening today. We look forward to welcoming you to the next podcast in this series.